Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, that was for them. Yep. Good to see all of you this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Thessalonians. Um, We're taking a break from our time in the Gospel of Luke, as we do every year uh, in early October, uh, to talk about what's going on here at DCC. Who are we? And this year, we don't want to just talk about ourselves. We want to look at the capital C church, the big, broad, wide, deep stream of the Christian faith that we swim in. And so this week, we'll talk about this idea of the history of the church, the tradition, the long-form story that we find ourselves in. Uh, Next week, our friend Jonathan Merritt will be with us again, and we'll talk about what does it mean for us to be a body together. And then our final week, we'll talk about what does it mean to actually live this kind of faith in our world today. And then on October 22nd, if you weren't here when we started, uh, we're going to have a baptism, a time of baptism. And we invite you, if you are in a place where you've experienced some sort of death and renewal in your life, if it's something maybe that you did before and it was meaningless and you feel like maybe now if I do it, it'll be meaningful, uh, we'd invite you uh, to consider jumping into that. At the end of our time together this morning in our uh, participate area, Joel Carlman will be there, uh, or you can come and speak with me after if you have any interest in baptism. With that said, 2 Thessalonians. Now, not only is that word a mouthful, uh, but the city of Thessalonica, where this church was, uh, it's still there. Now it's just called Thessaloniki, but it was on the sea. It was actually a port city, and it was the capital of the Macedonian province of the Roman Empire, which means it was a very important city. It was a very large city. Some say up to half a million people lived there in the time of the writing of this letter. And it brought in people from all over the world. This is one of the reasons that Paul went there initially, is that Paul was pretty strategic when he was going around telling people about this fellow he met named Jesus. He would go to large cities that were really influential. And we learn from the book of Acts that when Paul went to Thessalonica, he spent three weeks going to the synagogue and talking with them about Jesus. And a very few 
did not like what he was teaching, and so they went out into the marketplace, and they stirred up a mob, and they went after Paul and his friend Silas. They were so threatening that Paul and Silas had to leave. They had to flee for their life, actually. And they left behind this small church. Now, I don't know what you imagine when you hear like the church in Thessalonica, or the church in Corinth, or the church in Ephesus, all of these cities in the empire, but these were more like small group gatherings. They were very much on the margins of any culture and society in which they lived. They were a fledgling movement. Some say maybe as much as 10 or 15 large churches would be in the 30 and 40 numbers was all that there was. So Paul, who they knew, had fled for his life, and now he's writing them letters. Now keep in mind, if it's a small church, it's likely that you, if you were a part of the church, would have met Paul. You would have had conversations with him. We know from the verses we're about to read that they heard him teach. I'm sure that you had, probably would have had meals with him. And imagine the stories that guy could have told. If you've ever read the book of Acts, Paul's life was absolutely bonkers. And so this is someone that you knew. This is someone you respected. This is someone who helped you see the world differently. And now he's not written just one letter, but he's written a second letter. And he's written it in the midst of a time that you're going through something very difficult as a faith community. And this is what he says. I'll begin reading in verse 13. But we ought always to thank God for you, my brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. Because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to, to, to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good word indeed. Now the key word that I want to focus on in these verses is that word in verse 15 that says hold fast to the teachings. It also can be translated traditions. It's actually a Greek word that just means hand it over. That you have something, hand it over. Or you could translate it as pass it on or pass it along. Paul says, don't forget what we handed over to you. Don't forget what we passed along to you. Now, this is not the only time Paul says this. He says this to a lot of the churches in the letters that he writes them. He even says it in a letter he wrote to a young pastor named Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, Don't forget what I handed over to you. Don't forget what I passed along to you. And see to it that you pass it on to others. The assumption in this word both here to the church in Thessalonica and to Timothy, was, hey, you've received something, now you pass it on. Something was handed over to you, now you hand it over to others. Don't hold on to it for yourselves. Continue passing it along. And we know that the church in Thessalonica did just that. 
That because of their fidelity and their commitment and their love of one another, that they passed something on to those who came after them. And the church in Thessalonica, it still exists today. We know that Timothy did this. We know that even the disciples of Jesus did this. And the disciples of those disciples did this. There's actually a fragment of a letter that one of the early church fathers wrote to a fellow named Florinus. It was written by Irenaeus, and it was recorded by another historian named Eusebius. All very interesting names, I realize. And it's Irenaeus writing to Florinus about his time with a guy named Polycarp. And this is what he says. He says, I can speak even of the place in which the blessed Polycarp sat and disputed how he came in and went out, the character of his life, the appearance of his body, the discourses which he made to people, how he reported his discourse with John, that being the disciple of Jesus, and with others who had seen the Lord, how he remembered their words and what were the things concerning the Lord which we had heard, he had heard from them about their miracles and about their teaching and how Polycarp had received them from the eyewitnesses of the word of life. Polycarp was a disciple of Jesus' disciple, John, who wrote the Gospel of John and the three letters of John. Irenaeus is saying, I remember listening to Polycarp when he would talk about his conversations with John. And what is Irenaeus doing? He's taking what Polycarp passed on to him, and now he's passing it on to Florinus because he's concerned Florinus is erring. This is part of our long story. You see, it can be easy to read a book like 2 Thessalonians and say, okay, this is a letter. And it feels like it's in another realm, in a distant realm, and that all of these people with strange names like Polycarp and Florinus are just not like us. And it allows us to create a distance from our faith as though it's something ancient and doesn't pertain today. But keep in mind that for thousands of years, Day after day, year after year, generation after generation, century after century, for two millennia, people just like you and people just like me were handed something and they've turned and handed it on to those who come after them. This is not like something that we're apart from. This is something we are a part of. We are here together in the city of Denver, because of people like those in the church of Thessalonia, whose names we'll never know, because of people like Timothy, because of all of those who came, who continued this passing along of what was handed to them. Some have called this, this larger story, the capital T tradition of the church. The tradition of the church is really just the attempt of the Christian community to remain faithful to the core of our faith or to the teachings of Jesus. And we do that in light of the community of which we're a part. We do that in light of the sacred text. We do that in light of the culture of which we're a part. And we do that in light of what the Spirit is teaching us and leading us toward. This is the tradition now, I realize if you're Protestant or you grew up Protestant, you've not heard much about tradition because there was a little event in the 16th century called the Reformation. 
This is a little bit of church history for you. There was a fellow named Martin Luther who had 95 statements, and he went up to the cathedral in his hometown, and he nailed those statements, or really they were critiques and complaints, to the church door. Now again, remember I said Martin, or these people were just like us. Martin Luther said, and this is 100% true, were it not for drinking beer late at night, there would have been no reformation. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I think that's part of something that's been passed on to us that we should definitely <laughs> pass on. Now the reformers, they wanted to reform the Catholic Church. They had some issues with it, rightfully so. But if you grew up Protestant, we're basically the descendants of the Reformers. And one of the things that they said was, out with tradition, sola scriptura, or only scripture, or only the Bible. Now, maybe you grew up in a tradition where people talked about the Bible. Basic instructions before leaving earth. Uh-huh. It's taken some of you a bit. You're like, B-I-B, oh my goodness. I didn't know that's what it meant. It's not what it meant. And what's interesting is sola scriptura, which elevated the view of Scripture in a very positive way, is in and of itself tradition. Because nowhere in the Bible does the Bible say, only listen to me. As a matter of fact, throughout the Bible, it points to different things all over the place and says, pay attention to that and to that and to this person's words and to what nature is teaching us and to the person of Jesus. Tradition is simply our story of our attempt to be faithful to the core teachings of Jesus in light of community, culture, the sacred text, and the spirit. And we're still a part of that story. Now keep in mind what's happened over the years and the centuries is that when something is passed on, it often will evolve and expand and grow and be nuanced and take on new meanings. And not every single thing is carried forward. Sometimes new things are carried forward. Because what happens is, is we end up living in new times and in new seasons as a world. And depending on what era or what time or what epoch you live in, depending on the place where you live, do you live in a city or do you live in a rural environment? Because where you live will shape you. What challenges do you and your communities and do, does your group face? Not everybody has ever faced a global pandemic. Not everyone has faced a government that keeps averting shutdown by putting us further into debt. And what about the circumstances? I mean, these are things like your race, your ethnicity, your gender, your sexual orientation, your faith, your education level. See, all of these things impact not only how we receive, but how we pass things on. And when it comes to the tradition or the story of the church, when it comes to what we've received and what we will pass on, the question is not, well, will we pass something on? The question is, what will we pass on? And we can be those who bring great intention to what we pass on. Or we can lack intention and not be aware of what we pass on. But make no mistake, something will be caught and taught by those who are coming after us. So what is it that we will pass on? 
as those who are a part of this long story and this endless conversation between humanity and the divine that is withheld within this Christian faith. What will we pass on? And I ask that question because some of the things that I've seen that have become almost commonplace, especially in the Protestant church in recent years, maybe they deserve a little bit of attention. I've been around for, I don't know, 25 years, which feels crazy to say. And in those 25 years, one of the most common things I've seen when it comes to what we're going to pass along is actually what we're not going to pass along because we're not going to be like them. And they're typically pointing at their parents' church. And so what they do is they define themselves by what they're not. I have a friend, and I love him deeply, but I always ask him, like, does it get boring preaching to the choir? Because your audience is a bunch of disconcerted people who don't really like the church and they just love throwing rocks at it. Now, I understand there are some things that need to be criticized. There are some things that need to be called out. I believe the church as a whole is responsible for a lot of pain and wounding in the lives of a lot of people in a lot of communities. And the name of Jesus should not be a bumper sticker for anything, especially empires. But when we say, well, I'm not going to be that. I mean, the first time I heard this was early on. People were like, you know what we're not going to do? We're not going to have Bibles. We're just going to put the words up on the screen. Oh, like that's a big deal. Oh, wow, you're, man, you're far ahead of the curve. We're not going to sing those songs. We're not going to preach this way. We're not going to talk about giving. Doesn't that lack creativity? I mean, after a while, there's only so many things you can't not be. Did I say that right? And, and what it really is, is it's just criticism and criticism and criticism. But what's new? Not only that, but oftentimes this criticism comes out because whoever you are criticizing are in fact the ones who have hurt you and now you are living your life with them still existing as one of your central reference points. Is it any wonder that constant criticism, that constant we're not going to be that, rarely leads to flourishing and healing? Because in some ways you're still tethered to those who wounded you. What will we pass along? One of the, the words that I hear a lot today is the word deconstruction. How many of you have heard this word in the context of faith? Yeah, many of you. Now let me say this. Deconstruction is important, it is needed, and it is one thing that can lead to unbelievable growth and freedom. But deconstruction is a careful disassembling and examination of the parts and a consideration of what it is that you're disassembling. Similar to what we're not going to be, what I've seen a lot of is not deconstruction, but just destruction. Burn it all down! Now, some things need to be burned down. But burn it all down? Tear it apart? I mean, it doesn't take much to do that. Did I miss something? 
I don't want to call attention to anyone who might be embarrassed right now, so we'll just keep going. <laughs> but the, the idea is like, I mean, if we just tear something apart to, to the place where it just keeps going, what are we going to pass on? Like splintered wood and a few nails that are bent? If we burn it all down, what are we going to do? Just like give them a bunch of ashes and be like, build something with this. Deconstruction is important. Deconstruction is needed, but this is not what I often see. I just see people who want to raise the entire thing and walk away. I'm not sure that destruction, for destruction's sake, or for vengeance' sake, is the most helpful thing we can do. Another thing that I've seen with a lot of my friends is just abandoning one system of belief for an entirely different set of beliefs. I had a conversation not long ago with a friend of mine who said I just couldn't do the dogma and the certainty and the theological arrogance that I saw in the church. It was driving me crazy. And then proceeded for the next half hour to tell me why everything I believed was wrong and everything that he believed, why it was right, why he was certain of it, and why I was a fool if I didn't believe it. And I was like, so let me get this straight. You left because of dogma, certainty, and theological arrogance? Huh. Interesting, man, you can take the guy out of the church, you just can't take the church out of the guy, can you? See, it's not helpful. When we think about what we're going to pass along, it's not helpful to be against, to destroy, to just shift into a new way of believing with the same old way of believing. C.S. Lewis actually talks about this in his wonderful book, Surprised by Joy, which is a bit of an autobiography, and he says this, Chronological snobbery, which, by the way, great, like, we, someone needs to hashtag that. Chronological snobbery, the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that what has ever, whatever has gone out of date is, on that account, discredited. From seeing this, one passes to the realization that our own age is only a period. And certainty has, like all periods, its own characteristic illusions. And they are likeliest to lurk in those widespread assumptions which are so ingrained in the age that no one dares attack or feels it necessary to defend them. This is a really fancy way of simply saying, we're right, they're wrong, man, doesn't that feel good? Which is exactly what the generations who came before us did in an unhealthy way, which is exactly what the generations before them did in an unhealthy way. But maybe if we see it, if we see our own chronological snobbery, and it is snobbery, we just might be able to be a bit more intentional when we consider what it is that will pass along because we will pass something along. When I was a really little kid, my dad borrowed a chainsaw from our neighbors. And something you need to know about my dad is he just, you should never let him around anything that is powered by gas and could injure you, maybe except a car. But even that, there's a lot of stories. Definitely a chainsaw. Any power tools in my dad were bad. He one time put a drill all the way through his thumb. And I just remember him sitting there and he was like, well, and he hit reverse and pulled it out. I mean, yeah. I, I'm the one who saw it. I hope your uh was like, oh, I'm so sorry, Michael, that you had to see that when you were 11. That must be terrible. 
Yeah, this was the life of Carlos. This is what he did. And so he borrowed this chainsaw from our neighbor because he had to go and clear some some trees in the woods. And uh, he kind of ruined it. I mean, that's the best way I could say it. And I don't remember any trees falling, so I'm not exactly sure what happened. But once the noise was done, my mom was like, okay, kids, you can go outside now. It's safe. And I walked into the garage, and he had this chainsaw up on this, like, workbench, and he's cleaning it, and he's taking the chain off. And for a second, I thought he was trying to, like, cover up that he had ruined it. But then I realized that he was, like, oiling it. He was sharpening all of the blades, And I finally said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm going to tell you something that I want you to live with for the rest of your life. And I said, okay. He said, when you use something or when you borrow something, always return it in better condition than the way that you found it. That's why I'm doing this. And I thought, okay. And I wonder, like, what if we did that with the Christian faith? Like, what we were given wasn't perfect. And by the way, if it was perfect, sorry to tell you, you're probably the one who ruined it. (laughs) And what we're going to give away isn't going to be perfect, but could it be better? My hope is that the generation that came before us said, no, I want you to make it better. I'm forever indebted to people who, when I was 20 years old, came around me and said, hey, You're asking good questions now. Keep asking questions because someday you'll ask great questions. Keep going. Go beyond us. Do better than us. What if what we handed over, we could at least say, I think it's going to be better. Maybe there's some questions we can ask about this. And I just came up with three, but maybe there's more that you can add. Here's the first one. What is worth keeping? I spent some time years ago thinking about, like, what's worth keeping that I was given? And I thought about the first thing I ever remember learning in church. It was a song. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Those words are words I'm still learning to fully and deeply embrace and believe. But I can tell you this. They've gotten me through many dark nights of the soul. They've kept me company in really difficult times when I was losing track of who I was as a beloved son of the Almighty. What a thing for a kid to learn. Jesus loves me, and it's true of everyone. Another thing that I was introduced to at a very young age was the Bible. All these stories, this ancient wisdom. I fell in love with the Bible years and years and years ago. There was a time in my life where I couldn't darken the door of a church, but I would read the Bible nonstop in college because I was fascinated and compelled by it, all of its contradictions and bizarre teachings and everything else. Now, the way that I understand the Bible today compared to how I understood it 20 years ago has changed and grown, but I still think it's a really, really worthy conversation partner that needs to be central to what we do because God knows we need something bigger than ourselves. 
And the third thing I was given was a moral compass. Now, I still made a lot of mistakes. Sometimes the compass didn't work very well. And I realized that some of the rules that I was, was told and threatened with weren't given in a really helpful way, and they wounded me in some ways and wounded my friends in other ways. But, but I realized, like, morality still has a place. Things like integrity and fidelity, justice, which the psalmist says is the foundation of God's throne, the welcoming of the immigrants, you see, like, morality, I think it's worth keeping. Now, maybe there's another question, the second question. What needs a funeral? I don't know when the last time you were at a funeral was, but there's a lot of grief. I don't remember how many years ago it was, more than 10 years ago. Uh, I took off and took a day of solitude by myself, and I brought a notebook, and I brought a shovel, and I walked out into the woods, and I wrote a letter to the evangelical church. And I thanked the evangelical church for all the things it gave me, some of the things I just mentioned here, teaching me that Jesus loved me, an appreciation for the sacred ancient text, and a moral compass. But then I also grieved and lamented about, here's how you wounded me, here's how you like disgrace the name of Jesus among people that I love and here's the things that I think you need to stop doing. And then I dug a hole and I buried the letter and then I wept because this is the church that birthed me and gave me life but I had to say I can't keep down this road with you. I have to, this is my exit. And until we acknowledge that wounds and the wounds and that grief, I don't, I don't know that we'll ever move forward. What, what needs to be buried? What needs a funeral? What are the things that you're still holding on to? You're never going to get the resolution you want. You're never going to help them change their minds. They're never going to stop thinking in ways that for you feel limiting and, and toxic and oppressive. So what needs a funeral? What do we need to bury so that we can continue moving forward, that we can continue growing, that we can continue learning, that we can continue to be shaped and challenged and at the same time do it with greater healing in our lives. And then the third question is this, what's being born? This is the part that really gets me excited because I'm seeing conversations happen in the church in healthy ways. It's not people turned around looking at all the people that came before saying, how dare you? It's people looking forward going, what is the spirit leading us toward and how do we as the church be good midwives to whatever's being birthed? Conversations around inclusion, conversations around injustice, conversations around ecological responsibility that we all share because one of the first commands God gave to human beings was cultivate the earth and care for it. Conversations around how does the church exist for the benefit of others, not how, just how do we exist for our own sustainability and benefit. What's worth keeping? What needs a funeral? What's being born? David Benner, in reflecting on this healing that is needed within us so that we can be a healing presence in the world, writes these words. Identifying and embracing your lineage is an important part of any pathway to greater wholeness because it involves remembering your own story. All the parts of your journey 
must be woven together if you are to transcend your present organization and level of consciousness. For myself, the great challenge was re-embracing traditions that I have grown beyond and that offered, even at the time, an oppressively small worldview. I did not want to be an ex-evangelical or an ex-fundamentalist. Too many people lived that life of disidentification, and I did not want to share their anger and stuckness. It was essential, therefore, for me to identify and embrace the gifts that had come to me from these traditions. This was the way in which I came to know that everything in my life belongs that every part of my story has made important contributions to who I am. And the same is true for you. You see, maybe if we do the hard work like those who have come before us, we're not going to pass on something that's perfect. But we just might be able to hand something over, to pass something along to those who come after us and say, hey, We're at the end of our earthly pilgrimage here. So here you go. It's not perfect, but it's better. And our hope is that you might make it better too. And we'll never get to that place until we take really seriously the question, what will we pass along? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the literally millions, billions of people who have received something and have passed it along. We stand on their shoulders. We recognize the path that they have built up until this point has come to us, and now you are inviting us to continue building that path forward. May we do so faithfully, seeking to honor the story, the tradition, the lineage that's been given to us so that we might even, in a better way, live the teachings of Jesus together. We thank you for those who are here in our midst, who are doing the work within themselves so that you might work within us and through us into our world. We pray these things together in the strong name of Jesus and all my friends said. When it comes to passing something along, you might wonder where to start. Well, one of the central things that's been passed along throughout the history of the church is Eucharist. It was first happened when Jesus enjoyed his last meal with his disciples, and it says that when he had taken the bread, or when he had given thanks, he took the bread, broke it, and gave it to them, and in the same way he did so with the cup. And not quite a generation later, there was a church in the city of Corinth, and they were getting things all mixed up with regard to this meal that at that point was called the love feast. And this is what Paul says in his letter to the church in Corinth. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And here at Denver Community Church, we recognize that this table, this meal, is the meal of Christ, which means all are welcome no matter where you find yourselves this morning. And so we invite you when you're ready, you can come down to the two stations down front, down the middle aisle, or use the side aisles to go to the stations on the side and return to your seats using the diagonal aisle.